Job chapter 38. The first time I taught from Job 38, several years ago, and we were at a, a beach barbecue for a college group at a church that I was serving at at the time. And uh, literally five minutes before we were going to take some time and worship and then have some teaching, the college pastor at the time, where I was serving as a youth pastor, Ron Gallagher, uh, leaned over to me and said, Hey, why don't you teach tonight? Uh-huh. Okay? And so while worship was going on, I was feverishly flipping you know, chapters, trying to find something that would hit that, uh, that I could talk about, and I ended up opening up and landing in Job 38, and I thought, well, this looks good. <laughs> I read there on the beach with those college students, Job 38, 39, 40, 41, and 42. And it was silent. I didn't add anything to it. I didn't need to. I'm going to tonight. But it blew me away at God's presentation of Himself to Job. And that's where we are tonight. Finally, after all these chapters of men talking, blah, 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 on and on and on it goes. Men trying to figure out what's going on. Men trying to give counsel and encouragement. Three of them doing a lousy job. Job defending himself. Elihu comes along and begins to prepare the way for truth. But even Elihu tripping up. Now we get to the words of absolute truth. Because they're spoke by the mouth of God. Well, Rick, are you saying other aspects of the book of Job are not true? No, Job is a true story. Literal account. Actual words spoken. Some of the words are wrong because they were spoken by men, and that's the very context of it. From chapter 38 through chapter 41, we get some amazing, amazing words. And Father, I just pray that as we open this chapter, we come to this climactic conclusion to the book of Job, which, Lord, you know, will take us more than one night to cover. I pray that our hearts and minds will be open to truth. And that we will recognize our position before you. And like Job, walk out of here silenced. God bless this study. And Holy Spirit, would you show us some things. But most importantly, take us to the place of awe and worship and respect and yes, even fear before our great Creator God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. Stand up, is what God is saying. And I will ask you, and you instruct me. Out of the whirlwind. So the storm breaks, and with it God breaks His silence. Out of the whirlwind. It's the Hebrew word se'arah. And se'arah literally means a tempest or a storm accompanied by violent wind. And God Himself enters and completely changes the debate. A paltry debate, a meager debate among men trying to figure out things. But now the Lord enters the fray and He does silence everybody. Now it is God who is speaking. And He will pitch for us tonight His splendor against man's smallness. And that, in these next several chapters, is the bottom line. God's splendor, His grandeur, His wonder, 
and our puniness by comparison. The Lord will set Job in his place. Now we know when the book began, Job chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, Job was the greatest of all the men of the East. This was a man of stature, the Mr. Big of his day. I mean, if anyone had it together, Job did. Righteous man, he was a good man. Benevolent, kind-hearted, giving, gracious, rich. And he knew all this. He was aware of it. Are you saying he was prideful? Yeah, to a, to a degree, probably was. Although he strikes me as the kind of man who knew how good he was, but tried to avoid being prideful. It's kind of hard when it's all working for you, when you're banging on all cylinders as Job was. And so the carpet gets ripped out from under him, what Satan intended as a way of, of demeaning Job and undermining the truth of who God was. Well, Satan failed. In fact, that happened long ago in the book when Job refused to reject God, when he refused to lose faith in God, Satan lost. So it's no longer even about Satan. In fact, now as we open up, it is truly about God. And the Lord, speaking out of the whirlwind, takes Job and sets him in his place. Puts him down where he belongs. Now as we read through this, you need to understand, God's no cosmic bully. That that would be us. That would be one of us having all the power of God. We would probably tend toward bullying We might be tempted to put down in order to elevate ourselves or to build up our sense of self-worth or power. That's not the Lord. He doesn't need to put man down to build himself up as if undermining man could do that. God is God. But He has something else in mind altogether. And you're going to notice over the next four chapters of this week and next, God will not give Job a single answer. It's interesting. It says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And the only way that word answer is used is just because God opens his mouth and begins to speak. But he does not give Job answers. That's wonderful. Job, for all these chapters, has been asking questions. One question after another, questioning, challenging God, trying to call God to account, trying to bring God down to the courtroom so he can make his case. And God doesn't give a single answer to Job. It's marvelous. Sixty unanswerable questions over the next four chapters. Sixty questions that are dramatically silencing to the mouth of Job and his friends. Sixty questions that are divinely sarcastic. This is part of my, my favorite part of the book because God is so sarcastic in many of his responses. Tell me, Job, surely you know, he'll say. Sixty questions that are designed to shut down the debate and put the little big man back in his place where he belongs. Now you might ask the question, why? Why is it so important to God to put Job down, or at least to put him back in his place? And that's a great study that, Spencer, we're going to save until Sunday morning. Okay, But come back and we're going to answer that question on Sunday. Why would God do this? Why does He respond the way that He does? And I'll let you chew on that until Sunday. But tonight, we join Job in the place of his meager mortality, I think recognizing our meager mortality, in light of God's magnificent majesty as our maker. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, he said, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And you might wonder, well, if God is the King eternal... 
immortal and invisible, how in the world are we going to connect with Him? How, how are we going to see Him? How can we even prove Him? I mean, that's a struggle for a lot of believers in Jesus. How do I prove God to my friends? who don't want to believe that a God even exists. And Paul also said that not only is He eternal, immortal, and invisible, Paul said since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. That's important to note, because that's the place that God takes Job. That's the place tonight that He will take you and me as well. He takes us into the classroom of creation. He presents question after question after question related to His authentic power as Creator. As the God who made everything. And if you've ever wondered, even yourself, why do I believe? What evidence do I have? Well, Paul's first response to you would be, look around. Look at the world. Do you really think this could all happen by accident? By circumstance, I think I've shared with you all before that that's like taking a box of alphabet cereal and tossing the whole thing up in the air and when it lands, watching it spell out miraculously the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) So ridiculous is the thought that this world just happened. And this this is right where God goes, to the classroom of creation. And He's going to school Job a bit tonight. And we're going to look at ten lessons. Ten lessons in the classroom of creation. Lesson number one. The foundation of creation. The foundation of creation. Verse 4, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? I personally believe in a young earth. That the earth is not billions of years old, as some scientists would claim. Personally, I believe the earth is as old as the Bible tells us it is, which right now would be roughly 6,000 years old. Now some would say, ah, that's a little simple-minded, Rick. Okay, I'm a simple-minded guy. But when people ask me this question, do you believe in a young earth rather than an old earth, that the earth is a mere 6,000 years old since the original creation, I, I have to admit, yes, I do. I believe that we have not been around as long as some would say we have. Well, how how can you say that? People will ask. I mean, how how can you, in the the face of the evidence, and what about the science? You know, what about archaeology and geology and paleological evidence? What about these things? And I think God's question to Job is a great one for us. Were you there? Because if you weren't there, you cannot say for sure how it happened. Well, then you can't either, Rick. Okay? But scientists, with all your methods and examples and your methodologies to try and figure it out, the only way you could stand up in front of us and say, absolutely, the earth is 4.6 billion years old, is if you were there at the first day of creation. Otherwise, you're taking something on faith. Otherwise, there's some guesswork involved. There is only one way we can know. And that's to have been there or to know someone who was there. Well, guess what? I do. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, In the beginning, God. That's a great way to start the Bible. With no explanation, you know, no challenge, no debate, just in the beginning, God. 
In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Hebrew word for beginning there is Bereshit. And Bereshit literally means at the head, at the start. Before the gun went off at the starting line, guess who was there? God was. So, because God was at the head of all things, there in the beginning, I believe the best source for our origin is God. Who claims in the beginning? He was there. He's the one who I believe is the best source for our subsequent history. And so I just take God at His word. In the beginning, God was there. In the beginning, the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the water. Someone else was there in the beginning, by the way. Well, who's that, Rick? God. What do you mean? Well, God the Father, and God the Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, was there. The Trinity. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, that is Jesus, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And by the way, when we talk about the foundation of creation, there it is. The foundation is Jesus Christ. You see, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. I'm the truth. You want to know where you came from? You want to know where you're going? You want to know where you are right now? I am the truth. And I can point the way. And I can give answer to you. I can bring answer for you. When you're asking the questions, the foundation of creation. Now God continues to describe, and it must have been just a marvelous process of creation. A wonderful time. He describes, secondly, second lesson, the elation of creation. The elation of creation. Look at verse 7. Were you there, he's saying, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God, angels, The angels shouting for joy, gathering together, the morning stars singing praise to God. I mean, it must have just been an incredible orchestral musical event. I think God does His best work with music. You know, God's iPod is what we're talking about here. The sons of God singing. It's it's B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew. The sons of God. Genesis 6 verse 1. Job chapter 1 verse 6, Job chapter 2 verse 1, all those verses referring to the Bene Elohim, the sons of God. And God describes this, this joyful time. Even as He's questioning Job, were you there when the morning stars sang and the sons of God shouted for joy? Where's Andy? He was here a minute ago. What? He, okay, well maybe he'll be back. I was talking with Andy last Wednesday night um, just about the joy of the Lord being our strength. And perhaps you remember several, oh, several months ago now we talked about this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not joy in the Lord. It's the joy of the Lord. It's His joy that brings us strength. And there was great joy there in the beginning of creation. The elation of creation. Psalm 148 verse 2 says, Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. The music, again, of God's iPod, His creative work, encouraged by worship. Listen, if you are 
kind of down in the dumps or your life is flat or it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere or it's uninspired or, or perhaps you're in a worse place. You're weary, just worn out, you're tired of all the busyness and things going on. The best thing you can do is worship the Lord because worship invites creation. Worship invites the Lord to come in and to recreate in you, to recreate in you, to change things, to, to enliven you. Worship inspires creation. And in the final fulfillment of that great messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61, Jesus says that He comes, Isaiah 61 verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. Man, if you have a spirit of of fainting right now, you just need to put on the mantle of praise. Go to the place of worship. Worship changes our hearts so instantaneously. It works on us like, like nothing else. Because it invites the creation of God in our spirits. That's what Job desperately needed. His spirit was fainting. He is wiped out. He's so tired by the time that Elihu comes along, he's not even talking anymore. He's just listening. I think he was intent on Elihu's words. I'm sure he is intent on the words of God right now. But I again don't believe it's too far out on a limb to say God does great creative work when praise is pouring out. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said thus you shall come but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. I would call this lesson number three, the inundation of creation. The inundation of creation. Water's an amazing thing. And, and God is talking about, were you there? Or, or who, who was it that took all of the waters of earth and put them where they needed to go? Did you do that, Job? Are you the one with the, the power and the might and the strength and the ability and the wisdom to do that? To, to shut up the sea and to say, this is it, you may come no farther. Water is a fundamental aspect of the material world. Without water, we have no survival. And yet, for all our science and our technology today, we can't produce a single drop. Well, come on, science. Come on, mankind. We have all kinds of fantastic inventions, but we can't create a single water molecule. I'll help them. It's called H2O. Now make it work. It's very simple, right? Job couldn't do it. We can't do it. 60% of the human body is water. It's amazing. 70% of our blood is water. 10% of our fat is water. Seems like it's getting to be 11 or 12 with me, but that's okay. 22% of our bone mass is water. And five-sevenths of the entire planet is covered with water. That's a lot of water. If, if we were to take all the water on planet Earth right now and spread it out evenly around the globe, there's so much water on the planet, it would literally cover the globe. If we, if we could flatten out all of land and just put all the water around planet Earth, it would cover the Earth to a depth of a mile. The entire planet. And water, while it's fundamental, 
is also formidable. It is a formidable force in creation. This force that God says, I shut up the sea with doors. Or, or was it you, Job? I, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> Were you there? Again, the sarcasm. Did you block the sea and say, that's it, stop here? See, God did that. This formidable force. Verse 9, along with passages such as Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and you can jot that down and look back at it. Verse 9 is interesting to me. It says, Were you there? When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. What's being indicated here, and again in in Genesis chapter 1, is the presence of, you may have heard of this, a water canopy. And there are even non-Christian scientists who look at earth and look at, at, at the evidence that we have today and, and they believe there, was, there had to be something, some kind of a water canopy, literally, that, that covered the entire earth in the atmosphere. Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, talks about the Lord separating the waters from above with the waters from below. Yeah, I know. He shakes his head, what? Yeah, the waters went both ways. There was the sea around the world. But there was this water canopy on the outside, out in the atmosphere, that scientists believe served to block the earth from the harmful rays of the sun, allowing mankind to live far longer than we can today, protecting against the harmful rays of the sun, providing a lush lush tropical climate all around the world. Well, that sounds kind of nutty. Okay, let me give you some reasons why we think that. Fossilized remnants of tropical life and vegetation have been discovered in Antarctica. How to get there? How is there tropical plant life there at a time? The, the water canopy explains why frozen carcasses of woolly mammoths, when dissected, these woolly mammoths found in Siberia, there was residue of tropical plants in their digestive tract. Where would they be eating tropical plants? Unless there were at one time tropical plants there. It also explains why forests once existed at the South Pole. They've discovered charcoal deposits 200 feet under the ice. There was at one time a worldwide tropical climate that could only exist with that kind of water canopy around it. In verse 16, if you skip ahead just a bit there, Verse 16, the Lord asked Job this question, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? The deep. The deepest trench in the world among all the oceans. Some of you may have heard this. It's called the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean is six miles deep. Six miles. It's so deep that it is an entire mile deeper than Mount Everest is high. Mariana Trench. Have you explored that? The Lord says to Job. Have you entered the recesses of the deep? Have you gone down there to see what was there? Checked it out? Formidable force of water in creation. We were all shown the extent of this. In two back-to-back incidents, at the end of 2004, beginning or or into uh, 2005, The December 26, 2004 tsunami. I was thinking about this during the last week, the formidable force of water and how powerful water is and how we really underestimate how strong it is. And so I went and I googled the tsunami and there are sites that have all kinds of video footage. So I went back and I was watching it and it scared me to death. Absolutely horrifying. 
tourists standing on the balconies of their hotels, and you can tell they're panning, they're just getting a nice picture of the view of the ocean, and they see the water surging, and you hear them talking, and their talk gets more and more panicked as you see the water coming straight on and, and coming against the hotel, and the camera's panning down on the hotel, and it's going up three feet, nine feet, ten feet, twelve feet against the wall of the hotel. It's, it's frightening. And you couldn't, there was no stopping it. Job couldn't have stopped the water. Mankind can't stop the water when the tsunami hits. Or what about Hurricane Katrina? Devastated the Gulf Coast. Devastated it. Blew away our intellectually designed levee systems. We could not hold back the water. No man can. The inundation of creation in the tsunami. Do you remember this? 230,000 people were killed. Try to wrap your mind around that. In Hurricane Katrina, another 1,836 people died, all because of water. And it leads me to ask this question, what must the flood have been like? I, I can't even imagine the horror of the power, of the force, of the waters unleashed. Listen to this simple but profound description of the flood in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. The fountains of the deep? Yeah, Joe, God said it in verse 16. He said, have you entered into the springs of the sea? God's saying, there are waterways in the deep that feed the deep from underneath. And at the flood, the water came up. It didn't just come down, it came up out of the ocean, exploding up around the earth. And at the same time, Genesis 7.11 says, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. And many scientists believe, Christian scientists, not Christian scientists, but scientists who are Christians, believe that what happened there was the water surged up and the water burst down, that the water canopy, that was when it was burst. That's when it ended. And all that water that was held back around as that protective covering for planet Earth became the deluge coming down as the water was coming up. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Only one, what God is indicating to Job, only one has the power to enclose the sea and hold back its proud waves. And I'm guessing it's not you, Job. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. I like that description, like a blanket, just shaking the ends and the wicked come flying out. It's changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Lesson number four, the illumination of creation. The illumination of creation. According to Hebrew reckoning, the 24-hour cycle always begins in the dark. The day begins at night. You know, we start in the morning. Well, the Hebrew mind starts at night and runs all the way around until the next evening. That's a 24-hour cycle. That's why it goes all the way back to creation. Why we're told in Genesis 1-5, God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Because Hebrew reckoning, evening, morning, one day. That's how it works. That's also, by the way, why I personally believe that each day of creation was a 24-hour day. 
because it's so specifically referred to in that way, evening, morning, one day. But it always starts in the dark and ends with the light. And I like this description, especially here in Job. Have you ever commanded the morning, caused the dawn to know its place, taken hold of the ends of the earth that the wicked be shaken out of it? And I get this picture in my mind of like cockroaches on a blanket. (laughs) I see Debbie going... I don't want to make you too uh, squirmy here, Debbie, but imagine waking up with your blanket covered with cockroaches. What would you do? Yeah! I mean, you would shake that bad boy. You would get them as far away from you as possible, and then, of course, you'd hear them all hit the wall. And they scurry underneath. And I would move. That'd be it. Put the house up for sale. I'm gone. But this is the picture that God gives us It's like shaking the wicked out when the sun rises. And there is something about this. I had a long conversation with my son about this the other day. Just the idea that, you know, nighttime, we all think it's cool to stay up late, especially when you're in your college life and everything else. You know when most of the sin happens in the dark? Because we have this bizarre mentality that we think because it's dark, God can't see it happening. You know? It's more of a hidden thing. It always seems that the night is the time when when temptation starts to get stronger. And when the morning comes, like it's bright, and okay, that sun is like God's flashlight, and that's when the hangover happens, and that's when this, you know, the regret from the night before and all the stupidity of what happened in the dark, God says, I bring the morning to shake out the wicked. Or, or do you do that, Job? I'm trying to remember. No, I guess it's not you, really. He says, the morning comes like clay that has a seal over it. What does that mean? Well, it's like the old signet ring, you know, that, that a ruler or a judge or commander would use, and they'd take that clay tablet and they'd drive the ring into it. But as long as the ring was in the tablet, the fist was in the ring, you had no idea really what it looked like. But when you pop the ring back, the clay has changed. And that's what he's talking about there. It's like the seal being removed and light is now thrown onto the clay and the contours are seen for what they really are. In other words, what looks good in the darkness oftentimes ain't so pretty in the light. What's cool and and exciting and fun in the night, the next morning often doesn't look so good. Jesus said in John 3.19, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So God controls the light, not Job, not me, not you. Skip ahead to verse 24. Look at this. Continuing with the light, he says down here, Where is the way that the light is divided, or the east wind scattered on the earth? Now that's interesting. How would anybody writing this book 4,000 years ago know that light could be divided? See, we know that now. We still don't understand it, but we know that light can be divided. It's, it's amazing. We still don't know if, if light waves, are, if, it's, if they're waves or particles. You know, physics is not figured out. Okay, it, what makes up light? What, is, it's tangible particles? Is it, is it waves like sound waves? What is it? And it's fascinating research, but it continues to elude today's brightest minds. No pun intended. But God alone bends and divides and determines the place of light, the illumination of creation. And back in verse 16, it said again, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? 
When you want to talk about deep, Job, how about the grave? How deep have you really gone? Number five, lesson number five, the termination of creation. Job wanted it. He wanted his created life to be terminated. Remember, that's how he began the whole debate. That's where Job started. Job 3.11, Why did I not die at birth and come forth from the womb and expire? Job 3.13, For now I would have lain down and been quiet. Oh, I would have slept. I would have been at rest. Termination of creation. Job needed to understand something. God is pro-life. Always has been. Always will be. God is pro-life. He created us to live. God doesn't want us to die. Death didn't enter the world because God wanted it to be that way. Death entered the world because man sinned. Period. That was not the way God designed it. In fact, that water canopy I was talking about, many things provided for a world that could have been everlasting. As long as man didn't eat that one piece of fruit from that one tree... God did not want us to die. still doesn't want us to die. Jesus said the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10.10 God is all about life. And let me just say this to you. If any of you tonight are in the place where you're struggling with the issue of life, whether or not your life is worth living, Jesus died because He believed your life was worth you living. Jesus' perspective. Life is worth living. It may not always look like it. You may be in a place of deep darkness yourself. You may be struggling. You may not tonight, but you may get there sometime where you're just wondering, is it worth it? Jesus would say to you, yes, that's why I came. So that you could have life. Job says, I'd rather just die. If I died at birth and didn't have this whole life at all if I just died I would now be sleeping peacefully and that's the false doctrine of soul sleep Jehovah's Witnesses among others teach us we talked about this a while ago the idea of soul sleep that when you die you just lay down and you sleep and the Bible does not teach that rest in peace the Bible doesn't say that you got one of a couple of options Job was wrong and God says you haven't been there Job You don't know. You can't make a statement about life and death because you haven't been to the place of death. You can't talk about what you don't know. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this tonight, but for a biblical view of death, I encourage you to go back and listen. We studied this on a Sunday several weeks ago from Job chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. It's on the website. And the the lesson title is The House of Meeting for All Living. Death. House of meeting for all living. But let me remind you of the bogusness of soul sleep as a doctrine. If you die in Christ, if you die in faith, even tonight, you have a wonderful and absolute promise. 2 Corinthians 5.6, Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and say... I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul says, when I'm absent from the body, I'm with the Lord. I'm there. I'm not lying in the ground. My carcass might be, but not me. My spirit immediately, because of the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross, the way has been opened. Access has been granted. For anyone who puts their life in Jesus' hands, when you die, your spirit is with Him. 
No question about it, biblically and scripturally. That's the truth of the matter. And again, there's more in that teaching about that if you'd like to go listen to that. What if you die outside of Christ? Well, see, that's the other option. And there is a waiting place as well, and Jesus described it in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. He described it as a place of torment. And I don't say that to discourage, I just say it because it's true. Better to die in faith in Jesus Christ. What about, what about someone who goes into a coma and, and a loved one or a friend or, or someone and, and I don't know, I don't know if they ever express faith in Jesus. You know what you can know? That our God is a merciful God and that that person is in His hands. And we don't need to worry and spin our wheels about things that we can't possibly answer or know. But we can have faith in the fact that God is merciful and just. And whatever we think on this side of eternity, on that side of eternity, we will look to the Lord and say, you were right all along. You were always righteous. Your judgments were always true. Going on. That's the termination of creation. Lesson number six, the accumulation of creation. The accumulation of creation. Verse 18. Have you understood the expanse of the earth? That is literally the girth of the earth. <laughs> I kind of like that. I don't even know what girth is. But the girth of the earth. Do you, do you understand that? The expanse. Can you measure the whole thing? It's width. Tell me if you know all this. Verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory and you may discern the paths to its home. Well, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Sarcasm, sarcasm, sarcasm. Have you entered, I like this, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress and for the day of war and battle? It's the accumulation of creation. The word there, storehouses, saw in the Hebrew, is literally treasuries. My treasuries of snow. My treasuries where I, where I keep the hail. Have you seen these places? And truly, if you think about it, snow is an amazing, amazing treasure. It's incredible. I was out skiing with some teenagers once it was years ago. Growing up in Southern California, I hadn't seen a whole lot of snow. And so I'm in West Virginia on a, on a ski weekend with these kids. And we were riding up the ski lift and I looked down on my, my black gloves and tiny snowflakes were falling and I looked and the contour I, I couldn't see it today I could back then because my eyes were better but the contours and the shape I mean the snowflakes were artistry they were beautiful they were magnificent tiny little things and God says have you seen my treasuries where I keep all the snow right you know make it all one by one, billions and billions of, of tiny, artistically designed snowflakes pour out of the treasuries of heaven every single year. And yet, you know, t- no two snowflakes are the like. No two look the same. Go home, take a piece of paper, and like you did in elementary school, cut out a snowflake. Go ahead and cut out a billion, first of all. See how that goes for you. And see if you can make every single one absolutely unique, completely different than all the others. Once you get to a billion, if they're all different, well, then you might be approaching you know, one year of God's work. Snowflakes in the treasure house of the Lord. Now, 
you know, someone might say intellectually, well, actually, Pastor, <laughs> you say treasury, that's nice and poetic, but um, snow is formed as moisture rises, you know, in the atmosphere and condenses into tiny super-cooled particles and droplets, and as more and more water vapor gathers together, it condenses. And as it condenses, it grows into an ice crystal. Yeah, and dependent on the surrounding air temperature and vapor content, of course, then these get heavier, and they'll fall from the sky, and on the way down, they get warm. And as they get warm, they kind of function like glue, and other little crystals stick to them, and, and then you end up with a nice big snowflake. And that's how it works. Okay? That just makes it all the more absolutely amazing to me. Who designed the process? You? Me? Job? No, we're the flakes. <laughs> we're not the designers of how all this works, but somehow, amazingly, every year as those snowflakes fall, they're unique, they're artistic, they're beautiful, they come out of the treasure houses. Psalm 148, verse 8. Fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfill His word. Why does snow fall the way it does? Because He designed it that way. Because He said, this is how it's going to work. By the way, notice the Lord says down there in verse 23, referring to the storehouses of the hail, He says, which I reserve for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle. Well, what's that all about? Three examples. Exodus chapter 9.25 tells us in the plagues that the hail struck all that was in the field throughout all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. People of Israel were in a time of distress. So God opened up the storehouses, the treasuries of hail, which He had reserved for that time and brought the plague to Egypt. Joshua chapter 10, verse 11, as Israel is trying to protect the Gibeonites, and five kings and their armies attack Gibeon, it tells us as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Oron, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and there they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. I was sharing with Les this morning. I'm reading an absolutely fantastic book right now. If you like uh, historical, uh, well, it's not fiction. If you like historical novels that really move, The Six Day War uh, by Michael Oren. Phenomenal. I'm just loving this book. And what's amazing about it is, even in 1967, you can read the stories. And if you're looking with the eyes of faith, you begin to see God was fighting for Israel. It's it's astounding. The Egyptian army on one front, the Jordanian army on another front, the Syrian army on another front, Iraq pouring their men into, the, into Jordan to fight. You know, all the surrounding Arab nations were calling for the destruction of Israel. The USSR, the mighty USSR at that time, was threatening to come in with Egypt and decimate Israel. And Israel starts to fight back. In 100 minutes, they completely destroyed Egypt's air force which at that time was one of the mightiest on earth. 100 minutes, not even two hours. And as Israel began to roll into these other territories and to go forth in battle, so many times they would roll into a town and they would expect huge combat and there would be like one guy with a gun running and shooting over his shoulder, you know, running away, scurrying. Because the communication broke down and entire armies of Egypt, entire battalions, pull out right before Israel arrives. I mean, they're literally chasing the Egyptian army across the Sinai back further into Egypt. And I'm reading this saying, Lord, are you still fighting for Israel? 
And I think he would say, you bet I am. Sorry, I got off a little bit on that. Revelation 16.21 tells another time when those storehouses of hail will be opened up. Revelation 16.21 says, Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This is at the tail end of the tribulation. I had a bowling ball when I was, when I was a kid that, was, that weighed 16 pounds. And it was a heavy thing. I can't imagine 16-pound hailstones, much less 100-pound, crashing down out of heaven. Well, it explains to us why the Lord said, I have reserved these hailstones for the time of distress, the day of war, and of battle. Verse 24 going on. Where is the way that light is divided? Or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood? Or a way for the thunderbolt? To bring rain on a land without people. Note that. Rain on a land without people. This is what I would call the irrigation of creation. Okay, lesson number seven. Rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth, and I'll just say this myself, wasn't Mother Nature, okay? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. The irrigation of creation. God is questioning Job, and He says, Who waters the earth when you're not there to do it? When you're unavailable to get out there with your hose and make sure the places where no one exists, no one lives, where it's just desolate waste places, who's taking care of that? Who's watering that? Who's irrigating? It's the Lord who cares for His earth. We just had some landscaping done in the front of our house. And we were told that you need to, need to keep that watered you know, pretty constantly. So we're out there you know, trying to water. Um, but there's a person in our household, and I, I don't want to say that it's my father-in-law because you know, I don't want to uh, embarrass him or anything. And he's not here to defend himself, so that wouldn't be right. So we're not going to say that it was Bill. <laughs> He's nuts about keeping the water going. I mean, he is out there. It, it could be midnight. He's out there watering. You know, I want to make sure it happens. You know, We've lived in Washington long enough, Cheryl and I. We know. Hey, it's springtime, baby. You know, it's, oh, it's a warm day. We've got to get out. We'll watch what happens tomorrow. You know? And everything is staying watered. Why? Because the, the, the Lord provides. Now, I, you know, I'm just kind of poking fun at, at Bill, um, which he does a lot with me, so it's fair. But... God provides. God waters the earth. I love spring in Washington because we get to watch Him do it. It's ab- I've never actually lived anywhere like this where overnight, you know, you can see it's kind of brown and dry and all of a sudden, green, you know, as the water comes down. Well, God takes care of this planet. God irrigates the planet. And it cracks me up, those who think we're going to save the planet, uh, we're not. Neither are we smart enough to destroy it. You know, that's all going to be God's business. Now, verse 31, continuing. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Number eight, lesson number eight, the constellations of creation. Job had already ascribed the creation of the stars to God back in Job chapter 9, verse 9. He said, God makes the bear and Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. But what are all those? Well, the Pleiades is thought by many to be the gravitational center 
of the Milky Way. That would be the Pleiades. And God says, Job, can you effectively bind this center together? Can you get into the middle of the Milky Way and just make sure all of it holds together? Now Paul said in Colossians that in Jesus all things hold together. He's the one keeping it all where it needs to be instead of running into each other. It's it's amazing outer space. There's only one reason outer space is not a complete catastrophe. And that's because God has it ordered. He hung each star, each planet exactly where it needs to be. And so the Pleiades, God's got His hand on it. Can you spread out the Orion constellation, the Lord would say, or guide the bear? Some believe that the bear, in Job's day, what they call the bear is the Big Dipper. Can you guide that to where it's supposed to go? And our Bibles say, and its satellites, that's literally its suns. And the stars around the Big Dipper or the bear. Can you do that, Job? The constellations of creation. Verse 34, he says, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom into the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Verse 37, Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Suddenly... In the midst of all this creation schooling, God briefly gives us a blip of insight. He gives us the education of creation, number nine. He turns from outward to inward. And there in verse 36, He says, Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? You see... The education of creation is this. Creation indicates wisdom. And that's what Paul was talking about when he said, consider the world round about. Take a look. His invisible nature, his attributes, they've been clearly seen in what has been made. What are you saying? I'm saying all you have to do is open your eyes and you see God's wisdom just in the way He made the earth. Just in the way He brought it together. Just in the balance of things, from the seasons to the stars to the day and the night. God has done all this. And do you see what's happening here? That God is silencing big mouth Job and his friends. Because God's saying, look, if you can answer these questions, then we're on a par. Then we can have a face-to-face, you know, a mano-a-mano conversation. Or Elohimo, Elohimo. You know, if you can do all these things, you can answer these. There is incredible wisdom that is far beyond the wisest of men in the created world. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And on a recent Sunday, we checked out this verse, Colossians 2, 3. In Christ... Is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Job's getting an education here. And in this one verse, and I love how God just kind of throws it out there and then just continues on with the physical stuff, but he gets into the heart of things where he says, Who put wisdom in the innermost being? Man. I mean, this is an education. Jesus, through whom we can approach God and by whom we can even have a relationship with God, Jesus is Himself. Wisdom. 
and the knowledge of God. John 1.18 tells us no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The education of creation. The wisdom of God and of Jesus Christ. Now, staying on this creative learning track, from this point forward, the Lord is going to just take us through one more lesson. But in this lesson, He's going to describe His personal care over ten specific and representative creatures in the realm of zoology. Number ten, lesson number ten, is the animation of creation. With each of these creatures mentioned, this is far more than just biology or zoology. It's intimate knowledge of the creature from the perspective of the Creator. What do you mean? We can learn all kinds of facts and interesting things about the animal kingdom. We can get all kinds of head knowledge about it and still completely miss God's perspective of creation. So listen carefully as God describes just ten creatures and He does it quickly and gives us a different perspective. The first creature He mentions is the lion, verse uh, 39. The lion. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? The lion. The Psalms bear this passage out, saying the young lions roar after their prey, and I love this, Psalm 104, 21, and they seek their food from God. So the lions that are out there hunting, that that are picking up the prey, who's feeding them? Who's really looking after them? The Lord is. God is. He's given them instinct, He's given them understanding, He's given them speed and ability so that they can go out and get the food. He is the provider, the lion. And God's making this clear to Job. Have you brought their food to Him? Are you the one saying, Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Here, kitty. (laughs) It's the Lord. Secondly, the raven. Verse 41. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment? When it's young, cry to God and wander without food. Interesting, the raven is an unclean bird in Scripture. Unclean bird is kind of a picture of symbol of evil in the Bible, and yet the Lord still provides for its nourishment. Even the raven, God's taking care of. And in fact, baby ravens are left by their parents often to fend for themselves. It's not a really happy little family, the raven family. And so who looks after the ravens? Well, Jesus said, Luke 12, 24, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And so that's feeding time of the lions and the ravens. What about birthing time? Chapter 39, verse 1. The third animal. Do you know the time the mountain goats or the ibex give birth? Do you observe, here comes the fourth animal, the calving of the deer? And can you count the months they fulfill? Do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young, they get rid of their labor pains, their offspring become strong, they grow up in the open field, they leave and do not return to them. Do you know about this, Job? Do you have a degree in animal husbandry? You know, do you know how this works and where they are when they give birth and how long the gestation period is for the ibex or the deer, the gazelle? Can you do that? It's unlikely Job knew anything about this. God does. Verse 5, fifth animal. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? 
to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place, probably referring to the region of the Dead Sea. Verse 7. He scorns the tumult of the city, the shoutings of the driver. He does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. The wild donkey. Animal number five. You see, survival of the fittest is not in God's terminology. It is not survival of the fittest. It is survival of the nurtured. God is the one who determines how the animals are fed, how they're nurtured, where they should go, at what point do they give birth. He determines all of this. And he's making a great case here before Job without answering a single question, just by asking question after question after question. Verse 9. Will the wild ox, the sixth animal here, will the wild ox consent to serve you or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The wild ox, this is probably the auroch, is the name of the creature, or the urus, and this is, was a, a great black bull, uh, sometimes pictured even in cave drawings along with bison, buffalo. And the defining characteristic of this wild ox that God is describing here to, to Job is that they can't be domesticated. You don't tame these bad boys. You might get them in and try to break. You cannot break the wild ox. You wouldn't want to even try. You wouldn't want to set him loose in your field. He'd tear it up. Reminds me of the time that Rod and Barb went out and bought a beautiful, you know, a little swing, a little wooden swing out there, and they put it down there by the pond. And long about that time, they got a bull, you know, to keep in the pasture, and he just tore it up. They looked down there one day, and he's just, you know, buttoning it, and it was just on its side, and he's, you know, doing this. And that's what the Lord is saying. This wild ox, you, you wouldn't be able to touch it. You can't domesticate that. Have you ever tried? Job, if man can't tame a wild ox, what makes you think you can tame God? The wild ox. The next animal, the ostrich. Verse 13. This is interesting. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of love. Hmm. That's weird. For she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers though her labor be in vain. She's unconcerned (laughs) because God made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, that is when she takes off to try to fly, well, she can't. She's an ostrich. She laughs at the horse and his rider. This one's just great. The ostrich. Now, first of all, why does this say plumage of love? That's just weird. The ostrich wings flap joyously with the pinion and the plumage of love. Well, that word love, and it's just a little Hebrew word thing to understand. The word love is probably better translated stork. Okay, He's got plumage like a stork is what God's saying. Well, why would it be stork instead of love? Ancient Hebrew does not contain vowels. In fact, modern Hebrew, the vowels are actually um, small consonants that take on a vowel sound. But in Hebrew writings, the word here that would be translated, it would be three Hebrew letters, Hab, Shin, and Dalit. And the Hab, Shin, and Dalit, together, H-S-D, that's all you would see in the translation. 
Well, HSD could be Hasida, if you add those vowels, meaning the stork, it could be Chesed, HSD, Chesed, which is the Hebrew word for grace, mercy, love. So for whatever reason, these translators decided it must be Chesed. The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and plumage of Chesed. I don't think it was Chesed, I think it was Hasida, the stork. It makes more sense in the context right there. Anyway, that's just a little explanation of why love is is mentioned there. But it's interesting here also that storks are tender-hearted to their young. That may be why Hasida and Hesed look so similar. Both are spelled H-S-D. But the ostrich is, by all accounts, an idiot. This is what God is describing here. He has wings, but can't fly. The plumage of a stork, which cares for its young, but the ostrich forgets about its young. I mean, ostriches have been known to walk on their own eggs. Oh! <laughs> oh, well, we'll lay another one next year. <laughs> no big deal. You know? The ostrich is, is cruel to their young. And in truth, the ostrich is, a, is an incredibly stupid bird. And there's a word picture here. There is a lesson for us. And for those of you who would like to study this a little bit further, the ostrich is a great portrayal of the heartless stupidity of someone who exists in rebellion to God. Because, well, like the ostrich, someone who's in rebellion is a runner. A runner. God says, when she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Well, why is that? Because they're fast. An ostrich can run over 40 miles an hour outrunning a horse. Fast animals. And Lamentations chapter 4 verse 3 says, Even jackals offer the breast they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The ostrich is a runner. And the rebellious person is a runner as well, is stupid like the ostrich. When we are in rebellion to God, it is the stupidest thing we could do. We kill our young. When we're in rebellion to God. Those of you parents, if you're in rebellion to the Father, guess who's watching and following along and guess who's getting crushed along the way? Your kids are. Just like the ostrich. We have wings and we could fly, but we're not going to fly if we're in rebellion to the Lord. And so what do we do? We run. The rebellious person runs. And God said in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, Woe to the rebellious children who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. And in verse 15 of chapter 30, book of Isaiah, Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. No, you said, We will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. Just like the stupid ostrich running at full speed, only God knows where. (laughs) So the rebellious person runs off, not considering anything but themselves, with nowhere to go. Is there an implication here for Job in God's example of the ostrich? Well, I don't know. Job hasn't been running, has he? Well, he's been running off at the mouth. (laughs) And speaking of running, continuing on, verse 19, the eighth animal, the horse. Did you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. 
He paws in the valley and rejoices in strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and the javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground and does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He senses, he, he senses the battle from afar. And the thunder of the captains and the war cry, the horse. God implies, Job, you know nothing of real horsepower. You know nothing of this. Consider the might of the horse and ask yourself, where did it come from? Where did the power of this created animal... Horses are amazing creatures too. I mean, we could, each one of these, we could spend a whole night just talking about each one of these creatures and what makes them so absolutely amazing. If you watch Buck or Kizzy out here running in the pastures, it's amazing their little legs don't just crack right in half. They all huge horse bodies on these spindly little legs, and yet they run like the wind. It's amazing. God created that. Job, you don't know what you're talking about when you're trying to come up against God. Number nine, the hawk. Animal number nine, the hawk. Verse 26, it is, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Stretching his wings toward the south, which is interesting because, you know, that's where they fly. The hawk will turn and fly south. And this speaks of the wonder, the absolute wonder of migration as the hawk instinctually heads south every year. It knows where it's supposed to go. And at the right time, it just kind of knows, uh, yeah, today, let's go. And off they fly. They know where they're supposed to go, when they're supposed to go, how they're supposed to go. And it's not because Job taught them. (laughs) It's because God created it into them. Amazing. And number ten, the eagle. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges upon a rocky crag, an inaccessible place. And from there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he, the eagle. Or the vulture. The Hebrew word could go either way. It's interesting, the Greek word could go either way as well. He, uh, eagle or vulture. And God's saying, Job, if you can't create or control or even contend with created nature... What makes you think you have the right to condemn the supernatural Creator? If you can't understand these things, really, how dare you stand up to the great Creator God? By the way, Jesus alludes to this very challenge of God regarding the eagle when He says, well, God said in verse 30 at the end, where the slain are, there He is. Does that sound familiar? Where the slain are, that's where the eagle is. What did Jesus say? Matthew 24, 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures or the eagles will gather. Son is quoting Father. Son is using the same words that Father used with Job. Jesus' words to His disciples are literal. What do you mean? This isn't a parable Jesus is using. Wherever the corpse is, there the eagles, there the vultures will gather. It's not a parable with Jesus. It's literal. What do you mean? Jesus is describing that time. 
when at the tail end of all things, following the final apostasy and corruption, when He comes back and puts down wickedness with the sword of His mouth, there in the valley of decision, strewn with corpses, eagles will gather. God alludes to this 4,000 years ago in the book of Job. Revelation 19.17 I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven come, assemble for the great supper of God. And what is the main course? It's the flesh of man. For wherever the corpse is there the eagles will gather. Corpses are the ultimate picture of corruption and decay. And so God rightly says the eagle literally gathers to feast on carcasses in decay and the world's decaying and life is decaying and God is holding out hope he's holding out every second of life he's holding out opportunity not to save you if you're a believer in Jesus tonight he's not holding out seconds for you to enjoy just a little bit more because heaven is far better. The presence of God is far better. But He is holding out in the midst of all this decay to save one more person. Just, just one more. And we've talked about this is the call of our lives. Well, the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. So we're halfway through the 60 questions. God never answers Job. He just questions him. We're going to stop there, but I want to leave you with one last question to ponder and to chew on tonight. We'll come back to this on Sunday. Why? Not only why does God seek to put Job in his place? Why does God need to do that? But secondly, why does the Lord answer Job with questions? Why not just answer the questions? I mean, God's completely capable of answering Job's questions. He could go line by line down every single one and the book of Job would be twice as long. (laughs) Maybe that's why he doesn't do it. He could answer all the questions. He doesn't. He doesn't answer all of our questions, does he? It's a little frustrating sometimes. Lord, I just need the answer to this. Would you just please answer the question? And you know what often happens when we ask for an answer to our questions? We get more questions. We end up with more questions. And from the perspective of man, you've got to ask this question, why? Why don't you answer our questions? I'll give you a hint. It's the same reason that God so effectively chooses to put Job in his place. Same reason. We'll talk about it on Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your grandeur and your splendor and how awesome you are. Lord, even in just picking out ten animals of the vast animal kingdom that you created, we sit back and we might know a handful of things about this animal or that animal, but certainly not all of them. And we certainly don't have the perspective of our Creator. When you look down and you know why you made them, the way you made them, you knew ahead of time, Lord, you planned all of this, it's perfect. And so we worship You tonight and we praise You. And God, we bless Your name as God Most High, as He who dwells in splendor and majesty. And we offer our worship, Lord, from the tiniest place of our hearts, from our smallness, 
and our meagerness and our meekness. And we just pray, O Father, forgive us and draw us near to You as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.